bracing for life. To feel safe and healthy. To have food and water. Work and respect. To see a better future. A hope for all people and our planet. But when pandemics push almost a billion people into poverty, when people can't find food and water is far, when jobs are eliminated and workers abused, then some things need to be seen and changed. If you see a world where families have enough to eat and communities rise from poverty, where workers are treated with dignity, and God's people gather and pray. Then you see the world as God intends. You see a better world for all people. So do we. today. Do I need to be up here or down here? Does it matter? Cool. I hate being up on stages. Good morning. morning. It's really nice to be here. It's um, uh, it's good. I love getting out and about in churches and sharing about Baptist World Aid and uh, I know that you guys have had an interest in our work in Cambodia for a while and that's really great to be able to come and, uh, and talk about that a bit as well. I want to start by just asking you this question. When you when you look at the world right now, what do you see? How do you feel? It's a, uh, it's a tough time. I don't know, I, f- I feel exhausted. I, um, uh, I was just th- reflecting back over the last um, year or so and thinking about the stuff that's gone on in the world. Like, uh, it was maybe 15 months or so ago that um, uh, the coup happened in Myanmar. And then we saw lots of last year, this COVID ravaging developing nations, India, Nepal, Bangladesh, um, Papua New Guinea, uh, other places nearby to us uh, that have just been devastated by COVID. And then in in August last year, we had the, um, the trouble in Afghanistan where the Americans pulled out. And, you know, not that long ago, and we were watching those pictures of you know, planes taking off and people falling off the planes who were trying to grab onto them. And it seems like years ago, but it was less than a year. And then at the beginning of this year, I was on holidays in Queensland just trying to have a break, and um, uh, the volcano erupted in Tonga. Uh, and then um, more COVID, and then um, even more recently, Ukraine. And it's like, I don't know how much more I can take of this stuff. 
Do you, know, do you know that feeling? Like, I remember when, when, the, when uh, the, uh, it was looking like Russia were going to invade Ukraine and you know, it was on the news every night and I really felt I don't actually want to deal with it. Not because, I, um, not because I didn't care, but actually because I didn't think I had the capacity to deal with another thing. And uh, I, I remember you know, my kids, have two boys at home who are 22 and 27, and um, for some reason the Ukraine thing became um, really um, worrisome for them. I, I don't, I'm not sure why all the other stuff didn't, but this one did. And it's like... Are we going to head World War Three, Dad? Yeah, I don't want to know. I don't want to talk about it. I literally would not watch the news at night. I deleted some social media apps. I deleted Twitter from my phone. I just did not want to see it. I didn't want to engage with it. I, I didn't think I could possibly have the capacity to deal with it. And then um, uh, our family's involved in a, a little church plant down near Port Adelaide. And uh, the way we do that is every Saturday morning we meet at our com- local community centre and do a pop-up coffee event in the car park. And um, uh, we've been doing that for three or four years now. And one of the um, one of the people that used to come to that was this short, um, bossy little um, Eastern European lady. And um, we we would we would get there about 9:30 to set up and get the coffee machine warmed up, and we'd give away bread and other things. And we'd get there at 9:30, and she'd already be there in the car park. Like she gets there at five past nine and waits for us. And then as we're trying to lift the crates of bread out of the car, she's trying to go through them and, and pick the bread to take for herself and for her neighbours and for her family and for everyone else. And while you're carrying them across the car park, she's trying to, you know, like... And, and then uh, as we're setting up the coffee machine, the coffee machine takes about 20 minutes to warm up. By the time we plug it in and get the power going, she'd walk past and go, coffee! And walk past and go and get her bread and take it back to her car and go, Coffee! Yeah, it's okay, it's coming. And like, so she was with us for about a year, a year and a half, and then she moved um, away to a different part of Adelaide, and we didn't see her very often. But about, um, you know, 10 weeks ago, something like that, 12 weeks ago, she turned up one Saturday morning. And um, we went, oh, look, he's here today. <laughs> Won't this be fun? And um, I'm, she comes up and goes, coffee. I said, yes, I'm making you a coffee. And while I was making her a coffee, she said, can I talk to you? And I went, sure, this is a little different. And she said, in really bad English, um, she said, I need to say this with my mouth, otherwise my heart will break. And I went, uh-oh. She said, my family were killed in Ukraine yesterday when a bomb landed on their apartment building. And this thing that I'd been holding off here in the distance suddenly just went... And I couldn't hold it off anymore because like once you know someone it's not just a thing right it's actually it's real life it's their story it's it's actually real that's the same for Afghanistan like I've got a I've got an Afghani friend who's uh, shot four times by the Taliban and escaped and uh, has been living in Australia on a temporary protection visa for nearly six years now genuine refugee um, when the thing when the war broke out in Afghanistan last year he it was about the same time that his five-year visa expired um, and it hasn't been renewed yet so he's living in Australia the government know he's here but he's living here without a visa and the only word he gets back from the government is we promise we won't send you back until it's safe It's never going to be safe for him. He's got a wife and three kids in another country waiting for him to get permanent residency here so they can come out here. 
He works really hard in the building industry and makes nearly $200,000 a year and sends most of that overseas to his family. And Afghanistan happened and I'm just spending night after night with him, having dinner with him and just trying to talk him through the devastation in his own country. I think, I just can't deal with this. But once you know someone, once you've got skin in the game, it changes the dynamic. And all of that has made me think, but all for, for all of us, for, in different ways, with the last couple of years around COVID, we have just become this place that's felt hopeless, I reckon. And I, I wonder if we're in the middle of a hopelessness pandemic. <laughs> that it feels like there's so much going on. And even as we're trying to emerge from it, it's still hard. And we still know people. I had an uncle who just four weeks ago died of COVID. And it's like, it feels like there's so much going on and so little we can do. Well, that's how I feel. I don't know about you guys. I feel like this, this fatigue, this compassion fatigue, this, this exhaustion that even engaging with what's going on in the world is difficult. We're just trying to stay afloat. And it made me think, in regard to our work with Baptist World Aid, what if God really is serious about ending poverty? <laughs> like, what if he really actually meant it? What about the, thing, if he, the things he says in Scripture he actually means? Scripture is full of references about justice and, and uh, care for the poor. There's over 2,000 verses in Scripture that talk about what we do with our money. 2,000. Way more, way more than most of the other issues that Christians get um, upset about or feel like they need to campaign on, Right? about who we marry or who we sleep with or, or how we do this or how we do that. Or the biggest bunch of verses about ethical behaviour are around how we treat the poor and the orphan and the widow. What if God's serious about that? What does that mean? And what does that mean for us? In... Um, oops, let's go back. See, if I stand here, it works really well. <laughs> Too well. Throughout Psalms, throughout all of the Old Testament, there are, there are these, uh, these types of passages. Powerful is your arm, strong is your hand, your right hand is lifted high in glorious strength. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Unfailing love and truth walk before you as attendants. Happy are those who hear the joyful call to worship, for they will walk in the light of your presence, Lord. Over and over again, these two words, righteousness and justice in the Old Testament, are pushed together. And Tim Keller, do you know Tim Keller? Tim Keller, you know, like, he's no left-wing, you know, social justice warrior. He's very reformed, theological, conservative, middle-of-the-road guy. And in his book, Generous Justice, he says, when you see these two words, righteousness and justice, put together, as they are so many times in the Old Testament, the only way you can read them is... Uh, defining them as, in our modern language, as social justice. That what God is on about is social justice. He says, it's because of these two things. I did, um, I did 13 weeks of Hebrew in Bible college nearly 30 years ago, so um, I'm going to give you the best that I can find in other people's books. <laughs> um, 
So there are these two words for righteousness and justice. The word for righteousness is sedequa, and the word for justice is mishpat. The, the justice word, mishpat word, is a legal word. It, mean, it means, as we would think of, of justice in the justice system, when someone does something wrong, that they are uh, appropriately dealt with. That, uh, it's often translated uh, in the Old Testament as law, uh, so these are the laws, these are the rules, these are the way we shape, our, uh, we shape our society and we shape our lives and if someone does something wrong then they are appropriately dealt with. That's sort of what that justice word means. The word righteousness, the Zedekwa word is a really interesting word. It actually means righteousness in relationship with. So it has this relational aspect to it. And there's, I don't know if you've studied theology, but there's all these debates about what does righteousness mean? Uh, what is what Jesus did on the cross? We, we, we become righteous. What does that mean? Is, uh, do we actually get this state of righteousness that we're given? Or uh, uh, whole, Anyone studied theology? Imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness? Don't worry about it. It's a dumb argument. Because what this word seems to say is the righteousness that we have comes because we are in relationship with God. And it's righteousness not just in relationship with God but in relationship with each other. And we know that that brokenness and poverty in the world is caused by and also amplifies broken relationship. Broken relationship with God, broken relationship with each other, even psychologically broken relationship with ourself and, uh, and broken relationship with creation. And all of those things are, are broken and out of whack and God is intending to fix them. And the way God did it was by sending Jesus and so that if we are in Christ, we are now righteous because of our relationship with him. And it's the same sort of idea that, that these relationships spill out as, we, as, we, uh, as we're in relationship with other, we try and do good relationships with other people, then righteousness is spread. And so these two words together, righteousness and justice, have this idea of this active righteousness, this active justice, this thing that God is at work with. There's an um, American... One of, Fleming Rutledge was one of the first um, women ordained in the... It's not called Anglican Church, it's the Episcopal Church in um, America. It's the Anglican Church. Um, and she says this, the righteousness of God is God's powerful activity of making right what's wrong in the world. God's righteousness is an activity. It's actually a verb. It's a doing thing. It's not just this state of being. That righteousness is something that we're, we're called to participate in. Therefore, social justice is something that we're called to participate in. This righteousness is action of God. If God actually wants to end poverty, then the scary thing is that he might actually want to do it through us. That he might want us to do something about it. Be careful what you pray for. I was speaking at a, another Baptist church here just um, early on, just, just after um, the Ukraine invasion. I was speaking there and that same morning they were commissioning a lady who had been praying about what God was saying about Ukraine. And on, that was, and on the Sunday, they were praying for her because on the Monday she was jumping on a plane and flying there to work in a hospital for four weeks with a charity, doing blood type matching so that they could do blood transfusions for people who had been injured in the war. And then just a week after that, I was talking to some friends of ours um, who also flying to Slovakia to work for six weeks with churches 
um, who were supporting refugees coming across the border. See, when you start to pray about uh, God, you need to do something in the world, sometimes God's answer might be, "Mm -hmm. what are you doing about it? So don't pray, that's my advice. (laughs) It's much safer. It's much safer to stay disengaged. Come on. There we go. No, next one. Isaiah 58 is one of my least favourite chapters in the Bible. Uh, I try to read it quickly and infrequently. Um, uh, and it, it's, it's this whole, the whole chapter is about uh, God's people uh, and how they worship and how, what happens when they gather together. And God says all these things like, I just hate what you're doing. Imagine that. <laughs> isn't that. Isn't that encouraging? The scripture for this morning is, I hate what you're doing. And God said, I, you, because you, you're, you do all these outward signs, but your hearts are far from me. You, you go through all the motions of worship, but it actually means nothing for the rest of your week. And in Isaiah 58, 6 and 7, he says, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned, lighten the burden of those who work for you, let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry, give shelter to the homeless, give clothes to those who need them and don't hide from relatives who need your help. Do you have them? (laughs) This is being live streamed, so is it being live streamed? It's being recorded, so I can't talk about it too much. But, you know, don't hide from relatives who need your help. You know, the ones the phone rings and you go, ah, I'll take that call later. This is what life in a flourishing kingdom of God is meant to look like. The good thing is that's the Old Testament, right? And that's before Jesus and before the nice, happy stuff. So we don't have to really worry about it anymore. Or do we? You know Matthew 25, the story of the sheep and the goats? Where Jesus says to this gathered crowd on this final judgment day, like the crowd gets divided into two groups and uh, one group go, Jesus says, you've been amazing, you've, you've uh, given, given, you've looked after the poor and the orphan and the widow and you've, you've acted justly and so welcome to my kingdom. And they go, well, when did we do that? We didn't even know we did it. And that was like this sense of people who were in we're sort of surprised even that they were in. And Jesus says, well, whenever you, whenever you uh, cared for an orphan, whenever you visited someone in prison, whenever you gave someone a cup of water when they were thirsty, it's like you were doing it to me. That's scary, right? And to the others, well, hang on, we went to church every Sunday and we, we followed all the rules and we did all this. How come we miss out? He said, well, whenever you didn't do these things, you didn't do them to me. You heard of the Benedictines, the monastic group? They had this amazing. St. Benedict was a uh, uh, was a guy who uh, was just convinced that the church was corrupt and the state was corrupt and everyone was corrupt and he needed to find some pure way of following God. And so the only way he was going to do that was to do it by himself out in the desert. So he did that. He went and set himself up in this little hermitage out in the desert and he re- just spent his days praying and reading scripture. And as he read scripture, he went, "Oh." seems that God wants me to do this life in community. 
which is pretty hard to do when I'm out here by myself. So he had this idea that he went around and he gathered up all the other hermits and said, I think God wants us to do this together. How about we try and do it together? And they went, oh, okay. Um, How are we going to do that? And he goes, I'll make a plan. And he wrote this thing called the Benedictine Rule, and it's about 72, I think, things that Benedictines have to do. If you want to be part of this community, these are the 72 rules you have to follow every single day of your life. And I can't remember if it's at the start or the end of it, it says, none of this should be onerous or burdensome. I'm thinking, are you kidding? Go Google it sometime and read it, and try and do that without it being onerous or burdensome. But they had all these rules, but the only time, the only time they were allowed to break the rules was when someone in need showed up. And if they were taking vows of silence that day, they were allowed to speak to the visitor who needed something. If they were fasting, they were allowed to eat with the visitor who needed food. And they could break all these rules because they had this idea that the person in most need that turns up could just be Jesus. And they didn't want to miss out on treating someone poorly. They didn't want to miss out on treating someone well in case it was Jesus. They would even do things. If a stranger turned up at their community, they would all bow down to the ground and lay flat on the ground in front of them to welcome them. They treated every guest with honour just in case it was Jesus. And that's scary, right? What if, what if that was how we were? What if every time we met someone, every face we saw, we actually had this thing go on in us that said, I could be talking to Jesus today. And not just could be, Jesus says, actually, the way you treat all those people is exactly the way you treat me. So Jesus raises the bar of this stuff. I've got a friend in Canada who runs a cafe. Um, it's a church plant in a cafe, and um, uh, they deal, they're in a really rough area of their neighbourhood, and they deal with uh, some of the most difficult people, addicts and prostitutes and um, uh, people who are homeless or people who live in uh, really poor housing uh, and they had this amazing ministry. I remember talking to her a few years ago and saying, how do you keep doing this? And she says, well, you know that story of where Jesus, um, the sheep and the goats? I went, yeah. She goes, there's this thing, right, where... I had this feeling that on this judgment day, Jesus was going to ask me, well, did you care for the orphan and the widow? Did you, did you uh, feed the poor? Did you give a glass of water to those who were thirsty? And she said, most Christians would say, yes, I did. And she said, I had this fear that Jesus is going to look me in the eye and say, what were their names? Not just generally did you do something, but who to? Who are you in relationship with? And if righteousness is, a, is, a, is an activity, if righteousness is a relationship, if social justice is relational, then surely knowing the names actually becomes not only important, but terribly, terribly scary. <laughs> changed my whole thinking on this passage when she said that. This is the dream and the vision of Baptist World Aid, that we dream of a world where poverty is ended and all people enjoy the fullness of life God intends. Everyone, regardless of where they were born, regardless of their gender, regardless of their social status, regardless of, in some countries, which even family group they were born into or caste they were born into, all those things. 
that God intends flourishing and he calls us to participate in that work with him. I want to tell you this story just to finish from uh, this amazing story. I know you guys support Cambodia, but this is a story. This, hap- this happens in every country, but it's just a great story that I heard earlier this year. Um, James is 24. He was born in um, uh, South Sudan, and uh, because of the war there, he was a refugee. He came across the border into Uganda, and uh, he lives in the northern part of Uganda. He's 24. He has a wife and three children now. Uh, his parents were killed in the war. And um, he lives in one of the communities that we're working in, in Uganda. Uh, and he joined this thing that we, this amazing thing that we do. It's, I think, uh, of all the projects that we do, of all the ways we do community development, this is the best thing we do, I reckon. We create these uh, community savings groups because access to banking systems in most countries are really difficult especially if you're a refugee. <laughs> that doesn't happen in Australia, right? We're, we're fine, refugees are welcome and we give them everything they need. Um, but uh, James joined this savings group. Uh, he was able to, to start putting some money in, but also a place that he can borrow money from. And he borrowed money and he bought some pigs uh, to start farming. Uh, and he started to, do that, started to get a bit more money and then uh, he decided that wasn't enough to support his family so he, he borrowed some more money. After he'd pay back the first loan, he borrowed some more and he bought a, a bread oven um, and now he, in his village he bakes bread and sells that to people to, for, to raise income as well. So he farms pigs and, um, um, and bakes bread and he's now paying for his kids' school fees and paying for their medical bills and like it's good sustainable development that cost us in the scheme of our massive project that we're doing there, I think it, we seed fund that group with like 300 US dollars. And it turns into this stuff. And this is what he said in, in, a, in an evaluation earlier this year. I'd like to open a larger retail business this year and in 10 years' time I'd like to construct a primary school to support the orphan since I know what it means to be an orphan. Like, here's the thing that I've discovered in this job and in the, and in the ministry we do um, at Port Adelaide as well. Poor people don't want to be poor. You can write that down if you want. If you're taking notes, that's, um, you know, that's a takeaway for you. Poor people don't want to be poor. And in fact, people who live below the poverty line, people who live on the margins in Australia, but especially overseas, are incredibly creative and incredibly entrepreneurial. And you give them just a little bit and they'll turn it into amazing things. You know, um, when I was in Cambodia, I visited, <laughs> visited this guy um, who had done all sorts of stuff. He, ne- he started off with this small little veggie patch that had turned into this massive farm that he now teaches his whole community how to do farm. He goes to the next village and the next village that way and teaches them how to do farm. And we were there and he's dug this massive hole in his backyard. And we said, what's this for? And he goes, oh, so I'm about to fill this up with water. And... Uh, uh, someone is going to give me some freshwater um, crayfish, lobsters, to put in there. And the partners were telling us, the staff of the thing, yeah, we, we import them from Australia. And I realised they're bringing yabbies over, right? So this guy is actually going to farm yabbies in his backyard. He's got to be building his own personalised yabby dam. And, uh, and this, that, along with his pigs and his hundred chickens that he had running around and uh, the cows and all the veggies, like, his life is flourishing now nine years into one of the projects with us. 
And what do we start that with? A bit of education, a bit of teaching in agriculture, and a bit of a leg up, and he's created this whole thing. He's so proud of it. We were supposed to visit him for 10 minutes, and we spent an hour, because he wanted to show us every plant and every animal that he had. Look at this, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. What did you do before this? Oh, I, I used to fight for the Khmer Rouge. You know, totally transformed. This is what we do. And so... I want to encourage you. There's big issues in the world, and if you want to scan that QR code, you can look at your own personalised Glen Osmond Baptist Church page on our thing that we have set up. I don't know if I've sent you that before, but you can do that. But, um, and I'm happy I've got lots of resources out there to talk to you about ways that you could get invested and support in that stuff. But it's not just the stuff that we do overseas, it's the stuff that happens right next door to you, right? It's stuff that's happening right now in Australia. The hopelessness pandemic is here as much as it is anywhere else. So I guess what I want to leave you with this morning is what would it look like this week that every person that you came in contact with you thought, maybe this is Jesus. Maybe this conversation. Maybe this person who's making my coffee. Maybe this person on the street begging for money. Maybe the next door neighbour that I haven't seen for three weeks and suddenly they appear again. What if I start to try and actively act in a way that each of those people might just be Jesus? And what would my response to them be? Let's pray together.